1: Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Florida Congressman Matt Gates led the coup against Kevin McCarthy this week.
2: It's something Speaker McCarthy hasn't delivered, and that's why I've moved to vacate the chair.
1: Speaker Emeritus Kevin McCarthy gave a gracious concession speech. Doing the right thing isn't always easy, but it is necessary. We'll hear from two congressmen among a 95% of the GOP caucus who did not go along with the 10 knuckleheads who bled and then
3: knifed Kevin McCarthy. Here's Oz Mike Turner. Kevin McCarthy was delivering for the American public. He was making certain that he was negotiating hard bargains with a Democrat Senate and a Democrat president.
1: And Darren LaHood of Illinois.
4: It was like this open family fight in front of everybody. It was like a divorce that everybody watched on the House floor.
1: All this and more. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. Follow me, please, on Twitter X at Hugh Hewitt. Follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. We'll begin with the big news on Capitol Hill. For the first time in our nation's history, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House of Representatives until Tuesday, was ousted. Florida Representative Matt Gates, allegedly a Republican, led the effort.
2: Mr. Speaker, my friend from Oklahoma says that my colleagues and I who don't support Kevin McCarthy would plunge the House and the country into chaos. Chaos is Speaker McCarthy. Chaos is somebody who we cannot trust with their word. The one thing that the White House, House Democrats, and many of us on the conservative side of the Republican caucus would argue is that the thing we have in common, Kevin McCarthy said something to all of us at one point or another that he didn't really mean and never intended to live up to. These last few days, We've suspended the momentum that we had established the week earlier where we were bringing bills to the floor, voting on them, staying late at night, working hard. That's what the American people expect. It's something Speaker McCarthy hasn't delivered. And that's why I've moved to vacate the chair.
1: A grand total of 10 members orchestrated this, seven of whom joined Gates in bringing the McCarthy speakership to an end. Andy Biggs of Arizona, Ken Buck of Colorado, Tim Bershett of Tennessee, Eli Crane of Arizona. Bob Good of Virginia, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, and lest we forget, the first stones were hurled by Dan Bishop of North Carolina and Ralph Norman of South Carolina. But they both have statewide ambitions, so they hid when the final vote came along, having bled, having knifed Kevin McCarthy earlier in the week. Don't forget Marilyn Matt Rosendale, who wants to be a senator from Montana, even though he's from Maryland. Those eight, along with supporting role played by Dan Bishop and Ralph Norman, did what they had to do to work with the Democrats, all of them who were there, to toss out something that had never happened before, the motion to vacate. And the first time in the history of our country, we removed the Speaker mid-session. I turn to Ohio's Congressman Mike Turner. Mr. Chairman, I am curious if you think it is possible for Speaker Pro Tem McHenry to put together an 18-month spending plan, bring it up with the 90% of the caucus that are normal conservative Republicans, Get a few Democrats to sign on because they get a couple of things that they want, and then send it over to the Senate because this is a dysfunctional House with these ten people, and it's not going to get better. Do you think that's possible to do it that way?
3: Well, I'm my understanding, and I've certainly have talked to Patrick McHenry, and he is certainly—you uh, know—it's great to have him in this position at this point because he'll he'll be stable, and and uh, he's the, also a great leader, highly substantive, uh, but. Uh, According to the rules, he, he only has the authority to be able to convene the House for the purposes of electing uh, a speaker and, and a few other administrative items. Uh, so those types of, um, of, of big policy issues, I, I think, would evade him. Uh, but, you know, Hugh, you're absolutely right that the, we, we've got to govern and uh, you know, people can't just sit on the sidelines and expect that we're going to get anything done.
1: Uh, will any of the 10 be in any way punished? Newt Gingrich wants them all exiled and primaried. I have no idea what the authority of the caucus is other than to change their office. I'd put Matt Gates in the basement if you have a basement. But wh- what is the what can the caucus do?
3: Well, there's no question that, that the, these individuals have changed their relationship with the rest of the caucus. And, uh, you know, I think our first number one job is is to get a speaker elected. And then, you know, after that, we need to have a discussion as to what our rules should be uh, so that this doesn't happen again. Um, and then, a, a, I think, obviously, an analysis of, you know, how, how was it that this was allowed to happen and make certain that as a team we stay together and uh, corporately uh, this isn't allowed to happen again.
1: I appreciate that. Very last political question. Have you talked to Jim Jordan yet?
3: I, I spoke to both Jim and Steve Scalise uh, last night as when we were all leaving the, the, the Capitol. Um, the uh, uh, privately had opportunities to, to speak with them. I, I, um, I know that either one of them are, are have great talent, and we got a good bench. So I do believe that whoever becomes our next speaker is going to be able to lead this house as long as we change the rules and give them the power that they need, uh, so that we don't have again this Donnybrook of, of a handful of people uh, taking down the entire House of Representatives.
1: Are these not? Are there any of them repentant? Are any of the ten saying to anyone, oh, I screwed up. I'm sorry."
3: You know, absolutely not. And you know, I, you know, two things here. You know, one, you know, Kevin McCarthy was doing a great job as speaker. I mean, he was delivering for the American public. He was making certain that he was uh, negotiating hard bargains with with a, a Democrat Senate and a Democrat President. Uh, he was making that difference of a Republican leading the House. But the second thing is, is unfortunately. Uh, In the environment that we're in, the more attention that some of these individuals get, the more they're emboldened. And uh, this certainly was a very, very, um, you know, circus spectacle uh, that feeds right into that.
1: Also voting with the 95 percent of the caucus to table the measure, stick with McCarthy, was Darren LaHood of Illinois. He was a guest of Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560 The Answer in Chicago.
5: Well, I know you and uh, your caucus mates in Illinois here, Mary Miller and Mike Boss, all voted to keep uh, Kevin McCarthy as well. What was what was your calculation in that decision?
4: Well, I, I think Kevin deserved a chance to continue to be speaker. Uh, while not perfect, uh, he's done a fairly good job over the last nine months. Remember, Dan, this is a math problem. You know, we're one third of the government. Uh, We're facing the Biden administration in the White House. We're facing Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans. So it's one versus three. That's number one. Number two, we only have a four seat majority. The expectations were so high for what people wanted. Kevin did a decent job with the hand he was dealt with. And what was frustrating, it was like this open family fight in front of everybody. It was like a a divorce that everybody watched on pay-per-view on the House floor, which uh, was frustrating and disappointing. And then process-wise, to think that eight people could side with 210 Democrats to throw out our Speaker of the House, that part was extremely frustrating. That's why I supported Kevin. I think he, while not perfect, has done a decent job. And frankly, I don't think we're going to do much better moving forward. So um, it was like negotiating with the Taliban with these eight people. Uh, they had grievances and personal vendettas against Kevin. And I think that's what a lot of it was.
5: Did Kevin
6: try, or I'm sorry, did Matt Gates try and get you on board with his group?
4: No, Matt Gaetz is all about Matt Gaetz. Uh, it's all about clicks. It's all about likes. It's all about raising money. It's all about trying to run for governor in 2026. To me, Matt has been on the same side of every uh, different issue. I mean, he's he, he's all about Matt Gates.
5: What about some of the others that joined with him? I mean, um, I know a lot of people were raising questions about Nancy Mace from South Carolina, who you know isn't always uh, in lockstep with the, the conservative position on things. Ken Buck, Tim Burchett from Tennessee. What what about some of these others? I, I, is this is this a Gates caucus, or do they have their own? personal grievances or did they just feel like they could do better for speaker what was that dynamic
4: well i i don't want to get into the personal relationships and why people made their decision but i think it was a small group i think nancy mace again she, she's all about herself she's very narcissistic she has been supportive of mccarthy and then against mccarthy she's hated matt gates but it was about her getting attention more than anything else Tim Burchin, I like an awful lot. Ken Buck is a very solid conservative, smart, conscientious guy. I think he that was a conscious decision for him to make. And listen, Matt Rosendale's running for Senate in Montana. That's why he made the decision he did. But the bottom line, Dan and Amy, is it's just extremely frustrating that literally you could have eight people side with 210 Democrats and take down the speaker. And and because of our rules, we need to change the motion to vacate rule. And make it a majority of the majority of House members can take down a speaker, not one person, because literally you have a gun at the head of the speaker on every decision that's made. If you don't do what they say, they're going to take you down.
5: Well, if you did get a Scalise or Jordan, that would obviate a lot of the acrimony. And frankly, you're going to have Matt Gates and others declare that they have been vindicated because in their mind and the minds of a lot of people that say, well, we've got a more conservative speaker now and now we can move forward. Although I don't know that you'll get more production from even a Jordan or a Scalise than you got from McCarthy. But one of the concerns is, are you going to get somebody that's more conservative and skilled than Kevin McCarthy? Maybe not, but maybe as well.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, listen, people have their talents. They react differently when they get into these type of leadership positions. But again, I go back to the situation in 43 days. The government's going to shut down. We're back in the exact same situation. You ask Matt Gates what he wanted for the government not to shut down. Well, they want the border immediately closed, they want Jack Smith defunded, they want Biden impeached, and they want spending cut across the board, 10% if you don't get that the government should shut down. So these expectations are not going to go away in terms of what people want, and it's such a small percentage of the budget we're trying to cut, but it's really about appropriations and cutting, but we're going to be we're going to be dealing with Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans, and the Biden White House. In 41
5: days. Well, the other thing this uh, runs uh, interference for is Jamal Bowman and uh, yeah. the, his three-alarm fraud. Um, the only thing on fire: Jamal Bowman's pants. And now we find there's memos circulating that in order to run damage control for Jamal Bowman, Democrats are to run around pointing to Republican Nazis and calling Republican certain members of Congress Republican Nazis, the Nazi Caucus to get focus on Republicans and not on Jabal Bowman's law breaking and lying.
4: No doubt about it, Dan. All, all of the attention is taken off him. It's all on us. Instead, we should be focused 100 percent on going after him, making sure that he's either expelled or prosecuted appropriately for his actions that he took. But But all these other things that, again, people are focused on and what the country wants us to focus on. Instead, we're fighting within ourselves. And it's like a big family fight or like a divorce that you're watching on pay-per-view, and and that's not what we need right now. So listen, I'm an optimistic person. I've lost some of my optimism. I think that can be regained, and this is when people have to step up uh, at a leadership role and show that we can bring back our Republican Party. So we'll see.
5: And you expect this to play out in the next week or so?
4: Yeah, they just, uh, our schedule has been put out there, so members are going to leave, come back, we'll have leadership elections. So whoever wants to announce will start their campaign. They'll be calling members. I've already started getting calls from members that are interested in running. And of course, what happens when you have Scalise, if he decides to move up, you're going to have an open majority leader seat. And so you'll have potentially a couple seats that'll be available, but people are going to have to run a campaign and and tell our caucus what they're going to do to bring us back together. And I think that'll be important.
1: Coming up, Speaker McCarthy concedes. To paraphrase Lou Gehrig, he said... I might have been
7: given a bad break, but I truly still consider myself to be the luckiest man on the face of the earth.
8: When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
4: Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up.
9: We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth.
10: Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400.
0: Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in
1: all states. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. No secret that the events in the house this week left a lot of people angry. But it's worth highlighting that the anger and frustration was very much present within the Freedom Caucus, including frustration from Texas Congressman Chip Roy.
4: I want to change what's happening here. But, you, you know, I got a bunch of people are going out there saying, hey, what are we going to do? Right. Are we going to, you know, uh, divide the country? You got people out there saying it.' You got people out there saying, look, we've got to stand up and fight for this country. Or we got to say, what's our plan for freedom? You and I have talked about this repeatedly. I know. Right? What are we going to do? All I know is I have a son and I have a daughter and I want them to live free. And I'm doing everything I know how to do to get it there. And we, the, the speaker reflects the Republican conference.
1: In the wake of the vote, Ohio Congressman and Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan emerges as a potential speaker. So did Majority Leader Steve Scalise. There may be others. I want to emphasize that neither Steve Scalise nor Jim Jordan joined in the knifing of Kevin McCarthy. They did not want to go in this direction. Here's Jim Jordan on the House floor on Tuesday.
11: January 3rd, we said the 118th Congress is about three things. Pass the bills that need passed, do the oversight work that needs to be done, and stop the inevitable omnibus that comes from the United States Senate right before the holidays. Kevin McCarthy has been rock solid on all three. We have passed the bills we told the American people we would pass. 87,000 IRS agents, that that bill passed. Parents' Bill of Rights, that bill passed. Energy legislation passed. Border security, immigration enforcement legislation, the strongest bill ever to pass the Congress, passed earlier this year. We have done what we told them we were going to do. We can't help but the Senate won't take up those good, common-sense bills. They'll have to answer to the American people come Election Day. Oversight. We have done the oversight that we're supposed to do. Because of our oversight, we know that parents were targeted by the Department of Justice. Because of our oversight, we know that 51 former intel officials misled the country weeks before the most important election we have. And because of our oversight, the disinformation governance board at the Department of Homeland Security is gone. Because of our oversight, the memo attacking pro-life Catholics has been rescinded. Because of our oversight, unannounced visits to Americans' home by the Internal Revenue Service has stopped. That happened under Speaker McCarthy. And on the third one, on this side, of we know there's a big old ugly bill coming at the end of the year. All kinds of spending, all kinds of garbage in it. We're still in that fight. Frankly, to Matt's point, we don't know how that one's going to shake out. But we do know this. We do know this. On Saturday, we didn't take the Senate's bill. They tried to send over and shove it down our throats on Saturday. We didn't take that bill. And it was a tough position he was in. There were five options on the table last week. Option one was to send a long-term CR over there. That would have leveraged the 1% cut, something a bunch of us voted for. Both parties couldn't get the votes for that one. second option was to focus on the one issue the country now is completely focused on, the border issue. We couldn't get the votes for that one either. But when the Senate tried to send us that bill, he said no to it. I think the Speaker has kept his word. I know my colleagues and friends are saying different. I think he has kept his word on those three things that we talked about on January 3rd, frankly, that entire week. He has kept his word. I think we should keep him as Speaker.
1: Whatever language you use to describe what Matt Gates spearheaded this week, this is not governance. It's chaos. I'm sure we can agree that it was an exceedingly tough development for Kevin McCarthy. Speaker Emeritus McCarthy took the high road in his comments to media. I ended up being the 55th Speaker of the House,
7: one of the greatest honors. I loved every minute. And The one thing I will tell you is, doing the right thing isn't always easy, but it is necessary. I don't regret standing up for choosing government over grievance. It is my responsibility. It is my job. I do not regret negotiating. Our government is designed to find compromise. I don't regret my efforts to build coalitions and find solutions. I was raised to solve problems, not create them. So I may have lost a vote today, but as I walk out of this chamber, I feel fortunate to have served the American people. I leave the speakership with a sense of pride, accomplishment, and, yes, optimism. From the day I entered politics, my mission has always been to make tomorrow better than today. I fought for what I believe in, and I believe in this country of America. My goals have not changed. My ability to fight is just in a different form. You need 218. Unfortunately, 4% of our conference can join all the Democrats and dictate who can be the Republican Speaker in this House. I don't think that rule is good for the institution, but apparently I'm the only one. I believe I can continue to fight, maybe in a different manner. I will not run for Speaker again. I'll have the conference pick somebody else. I hope you realize that every day I did the job, regardless whether you underestimated me or not, I wanted to do it with a smile. I grew to enjoy you even on your toughest days and your questions. I could always tell what day it was based upon your question. Monday you would ask if I could pass the bill. Tuesday was whether the rule would pass. Wednesday was the greatest challenge ever to my speakership. And Thursday when we passed the bill you didn't think it was a very big deal. And it all started again on Friday. You know... I wouldn't change a thing. Um, I do believe I got a new portrait in there, too, of Teddy Roosevelt. You all know the man in the arena, one of my favorite parts of it, who errs, who comes up short again and again, but there is no effort without error and shortcoming, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who knows the triumph of high achievement, and if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. I always like to take a risk. Saturday, I took a risk for the American public. Regardless of what anybody says, no one knew whether that would pass. The Democrats didn't want that bill. Yes, they pull a fire alarm. Yes, they do their conga line. Yes, they wanted to delay. But it was all for the American people. I could not look the troops in the eye and say I would not pay them. For those who spoke on the floor, I thank them for their positive talks. I don't know what those who voted against and said there was some deal, they were never a part of any deal. For those who said about what we accomplished, I'm proud of what we accomplished. From the Parents' Bill of Rights, to our energy bill, But if they want to hold me liable because the Senate didn't take it up or the president didn't take it up, that's politics, for what I know. But the one thing I do know, this country is too great for small visions of those eight. To any child that are listening and who are coming to visit the Capitol, this is a place I want you to visit. I liked opening the Capitol back up again. I liked taking away the metal detectors. I liked committees to being able to work. I liked people being able to visit. I hope you liked being able to be back in. I think it was important that, that members actually show up to work as well. You know, to paraphrase Lou Gehrig, he said, I might have been given a bad break, but I truly still consider myself to be the luckiest man on the face of the earth. There's no other country that you could rise to be the 55th speaker, not get an internship, and be able to fight for the American public. So it was my greatest
1: honor to be able to do it. Coming up, the things we
10: ought to be talking about. We need a whole-of-society approach to fending off the CCP. This is our top threat.
1: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt continues in a moment.
8: Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with the Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com.
1: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School on Public Policy. One of the distressing developments of this past week is the fact that all the heat and noise in the House Republican Caucus caused by the 10 wreckers took our eyes off the things we ought to be talking about. The New York Times, for example, was more than happy to talk about chaos in the House, but we ought to be talking about the border, something we looked at in the last week of the Town Hall Review program, and the drug crisis, something we looked at two weeks ago and the threat from China, something we'll look at now. I spoke with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis about the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and the alliance that we see emerging around the globe. China, Russia, and Iran. They are working together. How do you break up that deal?
10: Well, we need a whole-of-society approach to fending off the CCP. This is our top threat. This decade will be the decisive decade. This is a technological, economic, cultural, all of those things we need to have national policy geared towards spending off the ccp and i think that washington's policy the the dc kind of smart set they've had all bark and very little bite with respect to China. I think on the current course, China will surpass us as we get into next decade. So some of the things we're going to do, you need more hard power in the Indo-Pacific. We are going to have a naval buildup. We'll have, uh, we'll shoot for 355 ships after the first term, and we'll get to 385 ships after term two. But I think even more importantly than that, reinvigorating our defense industrial base and our shipbuilding capacity so that within 20 years, we could get close to 600 ships. I think that we had an opportunity when COVID hit to really mobilize the country behind a common purpose of fending off the CCP. And we could have started doing some of this naval buildup there, but that's really, really important. So we're going to do that. But I think everything we do is going to be viewed through the prism of how do we counter uh, the China threat. Obviously, there's other threats in the world. We'll deal with those. But just like Reagan dealt with the Soviets above all else, we need our grand strategy to focus on China above all else.
5: Now,
1: Governor, how does Russia fit into that? What's the end state that he envisions in Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine? What do you consider stability for the world in a position from which we can turn to the main player in the threat, which is China in the new Cold War?
10: Well, we can. Stop empowering Russia through a dysfunctional energy policy. You can have the Green New Deal. I don't want that. I think it's bad. But just understand, when you go in Biden's direction, you are helping Russia, you're helping Iran, you're helping Venezuela, and you're also helping China. So we put out in Midland, Texas, a couple weeks ago, our plan for American energy dominance. We're going to choose Midland over Moscow. We're going to choose the Marcellus over the Mullahs, and we're going to choose Bakken over Beijing. Biden is effectively funding both sides of that conflict. His energy policy helps Moscow. He's also relieved sanctions on Iran and then, of course, did the 6000000000 billion. They're very much invested in, in helping Russia with all those things. But I think we have the economic levers to be able to weaken Russia. And that's just beyond the current conflict. That is what they rely on. And Biden's energy policy will make Russia more powerful. My energy policy will weaken Russia.
1: Now, you are a veteran and a Navy man. The budget just can't continue on as it has. We have to reallocate between the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, the Space Force and the Coast Guard. Do you have someone in mind who would be the sec def that would come in and really do what Weinberger did for Reagan, which is reshuffle the DOD so that we get it back to war fighting.
10: Yes. And so I, I would say rather than name and name, I'd say what I'm looking for in a sec def is somebody, one, I think it's been a mistake to have some of the retired generals go in. I supported the Mattis waiver. I think he's a, a great officer. and, and awesome. But I think you need somebody who's not part of kind of that club somebody that's got strong executive skills, and that's really going to be able to hold people accountable, is not going to be popular in Washington, but is going to be willing to make the tough decisions and show there's a new sheriff in town. But we're going to have a culture of accountability. You look at the Afghanistan debacle, not one person has been held accountable for that entire Afghanistan debacle. And I kind of feel like 50 years ago, if that had happened, there would have been massive resignations, massive terminations, and yet you had none of that
1: When you get there, if you're
10: the president,
1: will you do an after-action report on everything from closing Bagram right down to Abbey Gate? And will you name names?
10: Yes, absolutely. We need to.
1: Let me go back to Russia. George W. Bush thought he could deal with Putin. Barack Obama sent the reset button. Hillary Clinton thought she could deal with Putin. Donald Trump thought he could deal with Putin. Joe Biden thinks he can deal with Putin. And his appeasement ended up with the second invasion of Ukraine. How do you approach Putin, who is a very evil man, Governor?
10: using the leverage that we have at our disposal. I mentioned the energy, uh, doing that, working with allies to be able to bring pressure to bear. These guys, they don't respond to kind overtures. They don't respond to personality. They don't all just want to hold hands and, and have a better world. They respond to leverage and they respond to strength. And so we have to do that. I think that when presidents have been strong, it's been a successful deterrent for bad actors. Biden was the worst of our worlds. Because because, I mean, he comes in, and it was just one thing after another. And that really green lit, I think, a lot of bad people to do a lot of bad things.
9: Coming up, more on China. You have to start having questions about, are elements of the first family or the first family somehow compromised by this flow of money from these Chinese entities?
8: Peter Schweitzer, when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome
1: back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. As serious-minded national security conservatives seek to raise the profile of the threat we are facing from the Chinese Communist Party, we are, very quickly, bumping into the fact that the Biden administration is pretty much asleep at the wheel on this as it is on everything else. And we learn more about the very serious questions about the Biden family's very lucrative, quote, business ties with China. Progress on this issue becomes all the more challenging. Peter Schweitzer has been writing and researching this issue for many years. He was a guest of Michelle Tafoya on her podcast.
6: It seems to me that Joe Biden has always carried water for Beijing. And I don't know how much this has to do with business, but I know you know. What have you found there?
9: Biden has been terrible on China, and I think he's gotten worse on China. And and in my view, that is because of the financial relationship that exists between people in China and the Biden family. And, And, you know, the bottom line is... If you go through the Hunter Biden laptop, you look at the corporate records in China, what we know is that the Bidens took in some $31 million from four businessmen in China, and they really provided no service in return for that money. There's no consulting agreement. There's no advice. They brought no capital to business deals. So the question becomes, what did those businessmen get for the $31 million? Assuming they're not just charitable guys who are handing out money to American politicians. If you look at who those four men are, every single one of them, Michelle, has ties to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. And that's that's not just me saying that. That's looking at Hong Kong business records. They're in the footnotes. So one of them, for example, arranges for Hunter Biden to join the board and get an equity stake in a private equity company funded by the Chinese government called BHR. Hunter has no background in any of this, but that's basically a 20 million dollar payday. The man that arranged that at the same time he arranged it for Hunter Biden was also business partners with the vice minister for state security, which is their spy apparatus in China. You look at the other three who who arranged other deals or transferred money to Hunter Biden. Same thing. So the question is, is this a coincidence? Are these guys engaged in charitable behaviors? What is the mm-hmm. flow of this money? And my belief is belief is it creates a Definitely a conflict of interest. But even more than that, you have to start having questions about are elements of the first family or the first family somehow compromised by this flow of money from these Chinese entities. And I think if you go back to the Cold War when we were fighting the Soviets, if the Reagan family or the Carter family had taken $30 million from Russian businessmen linked to the KGB, people would be going apoplectic.
6: And why aren't we? Is it as simple as... The mainstream media not wanting to reveal this. Why is this happening?
9: I think it's a combination of things. I think, number one, the media uh, decided and they basically wrote this in in, uh, 2017 in The New York Times on the front page. Their view is that Donald Trump represents, in their words, quote, unquote, an existential threat to democracy and that anything they do to aid him, which includes exposing his opponents, people like Joe Biden. They are somehow participating in the destruction of democracy. So they have made a concerted effort that they're not going to simply report the facts, uh, that they are going to uh, skew what people see based on information. Um, And I had I've done numerous stories with The New York Times investigative team over the years, up until 2016, when Donald Trump became president. After that fact, they basically are not interested in anything that involves anybody like the Biden family. Um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the other part of it has been the social media suppression of this story. They they yeah. suppressed when The New York Post came in 2020. There have been polls conducted afterwards that demonstrate that if Biden voters had known about this, um, it might potentially have changed the outcome of the election. We don't ultimately know. My view is, you know, Trump improprieties, Biden improprieties, put them all out there, let the American people decide. That is Thank clearly you. not what the media is doing.
6: Yeah, it's it's amazing. They see t- Trump as an existential threat to democracy. If everything in what you've researched, all of this money going to the Biden family, you know, you could say Russia's the most hostile, whatever. I, China certainly has more money than Russia yes, does. Yes. China is, is hell bent on owning the world. And our president and his family, has benefited from their government or their in- intelligence folks that's not a threat to democracy <laughs> <laughs> no it's, i mean
9: exactly I, I don't
6: understand it's almost they're choosing the lesser of two evils or something and it's i, I don't see how you can say that's the lesser of two evils. I I don't know. What do you think?
9: No, I, I think you're right. I think you're right that that, you know, Russia is a declining power. It's yes. it's uh, demographically, financially, it is a declining power. China's an ascendant power. There are much yes. more. I'm not saying Russia is not a threat, but China is a much bigger, more robust threat. And you're exactly right. I mean, again, if we had the Trump family getting thirty one million dollars from these Chinese businessmen, they would be all over it. They would be reporting yeah. it as they should. I'd be right there with them. But the fact is, is that they're not. So I would just ask people in the mainstream media to see, you know, maybe they are the existential threat to democracy because they're choosing (laughs) to put their thumb on the scale uh, in a way that we shouldn't do it. Again, my view has always been and some of the reporting is going to be good. Some of it's not so good. Put all the Trump stuff out there. Put all the Biden stuff out there and let the American people decide that's the way this should be done.
6: There's no question about that. And this unequal treatment of these two people is ridiculous in my eyes because of everything you've just detailed. Today, here we sit with Russia having invaded Ukraine. And the strong argument is that we cannot let Russia get away with this because if they do, that's the signal to China that they can get away with invading Taiwan. It would have so many ramifications economically all over the world. I don't even think people have a clue what it would mean. If China invaded Taiwan, do you see those two things as being related?
9: I do in a number of ways. And I certainly support the Ukrainian people. They're the victims here. You know, look, the the Ukrainian government, they want to make Zelensky and his government sort of the, you know, Thomas Jefferson and the the founding fathers. (laughs) They're not they're they're corrupt. There's a lot of problems there. But still, this is about the Ukrainian people and their future. And we need to be supporting that. And look, there is a reason, I think. Why, while Russia went into Crimea under Obama in 2014, then skipped an administration, the Trump administration, and then decided okay, now Biden's in, now we're going to invade a second time. I think those events are that weakness is something that tempts people to take aggressive action. I think we have to be very concerned about that as it regards China and Taiwan. I think my instinct is China's going to wait to see what happens in the January 2024 Taiwan elections. If the KMT comes to power, which is pro-Beijing, they'll be happier and they may not need to invade. Uh, if the KMT doesn't win then I think all bets are off and we have to, God forbid, consider the fact that they may actually move into Taiwan. Coming up.
6: I don't think there is any doubt about it. While we've got this all going on, we've got a president and he can barely put a sentence together. So how important are the next six, eight, ten months?
1: More of Michelle Tafoya with Peter Schweitzer in the final segment of this week's Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Stay with us.
0: Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and AMBER alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may
1: apply. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. There is a growing number of thought leaders, political leaders, bringing the alarm bells on the threat from China, and there is a distressing counter trend we need to watch. Democracies around the globe are normalizing relations with China, even as we see concentration camps with the Uyghur, the disappeared in Hong Kong, Taiwan threatened, an increasingly belligerent posture on the seas and the eighth in the skies from the CCP. Why does the free world seem to be capitulating so quickly? Let's pick up more of Michelle Tafoya with Peter Schweitzer.
6: It's a terrifying notion on so many levels. And right now you have Macron from France going to China and basically saying the United States shouldn't, we shouldn't be following their lead on this. We shouldn't side with them in this disagreement or however you want to describe it. You've also got uh, Brazil cozying up with China. You've got Russia and China talking and, and China sort of trying to be a peace broker there. The whole situation right now seems so tenuous and so frightening. And it does seem to be a byproduct of a very weak White House administration here in the United States. I don't think there is any doubt about it. While we've got this all going on, we've got a president and he can barely put a sentence together. So how important are the next six, eight, ten months?
9: They're hugely important. And I think you nailed it, uh, Michelle, that power politics abhors a vacuum. And the United States has been the convening power on the global stage. And that doesn't mean we have to get involved in every war and every conflict. I'm not certainly in favor of that. But you have to have a certain posture. Uh, And there has to be a certain respect given to you based on the fact that you are the convening authority. And I think there's a lot of questions about whether the United States remains in that role. The Biden administration has been weak. You look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan you look at the retreat in other areas. And I think a lot of uh, countries like Brazil, uh, for example, they've got a new left wing government there, but they're generally pragmatic on these things. And they're probably putting their finger in the wind and saying, mm, looks like the the breeze is blowing from uh, China stronger than the breeze from the United States. The Saudis uh, are making the same kind of calculation. And it's very tempting for people, I think, to believe well, that's all foreign policy stuff. It's not going to affect my life. If we, ah. if we live in a world where China is the convening global authority, life in America changes dramatically. Our economy, our freedom, our ability to trade or not trade with other powers, it changes immensely. So we need to be engaged. We need to be robust. We need to be forceful. And I have not seen that not only from this president, but from this vice president, from Tony Blinken, the secretary of state. It has essentially been weakness through and through, and the world senses that, smells it, and they're reacting accordingly.
6: To think that, particularly as you mentioned, Wall Street and corporate America loves the deals they get with China. Yeah. And you go to any store, whether it's Target or Walmart, and you see how much is manufactured there. There is so much wrongdoing in China, so many human rights abuses, the Uyghurs you mentioned, and yet we remain so entangled.
1: Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Let me point out that you can catch our podcast at salempodcastnetwork.com. Among the other top podcasts you'll see there, Michelle Tafoya, who you just heard, and my own, highly concentrated Hugh. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Shubin, producers David Pouchon, Adam Ramsey, Alex Perez, Harley Idy, and of course, Dwayne Patterson. And let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us.